Let's ask God to help us. Let's pray. A gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we pray tonight that you would not just help us to understand, we pray that you would help us to understand your word, but that you would not just help us to understand your word, that you would please work in us by your Holy Spirit and change us to be people who love better, people who live more in accordance with your word and who love better. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you think about it, the early history of the Christian church is a pretty amazing story. You start off with one man, a poor Jewish carpenter. He is crucified, nailed to a cross as a criminal, alone. All his friends have deserted him. He has no followers at that point. But then God raises him from the dead. And after his resurrection, Jesus gathers a few of his disciples back together. And before he ascends to heaven, he teaches them and and he sends them off on a mission, a mission to all nations. He says, I want you to tell everyone that I am the risen king in God's kingdom. I want you to tell everyone to turn away from sin, to rely on my death and resurrection and become part of God's kingdom. Those few disciples go and do that. They go and tell people this message. They don't start any wars. They engage in no political campaigns. They just tell a message and then they form the people who believe into churches. Those churches face terrible opposition and persecution. There's stuff about the Christian message that just manages to get up everybody's nose. So for Jewish unbelieving people, the Christian message is really offensive because it says that Jesus is the saviour and the saviour not just of the Jewish people but of all nations, Gentile people as well as Jewish people. Very offensive to the Jewish people. Uh, Also very offensive to the Roman people as well because they say Caesar is Lord. Uh, Caesar should be worshipped and then the Christians come and say, no, 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 Jesus is Lord, Jesus should be worshipped. Again, they face terrible persecution and trouble. And yet within 400 years, the world is radically reshaped by this message. By 313 AD, the Emperor Constantine declares himself to be a Christian, issues an edict that Christians should be tolerated and not persecuted anymore. By 380 AD, under the Emperor Theodosius, Christianity is made the official religion of the entire Roman world of the day. How could that happen? How is that possible? How could a few people change the course of world history with just a message? No tanks, no guns, no swords, no no political campaign, just a message. Of course, the ultimate answer is by the grace of God. But humanly speaking, there were a number of factors that helped. The the, the Roman Empire was reasonably peaceful and law-abiding. There were good roads. The language of Greek was used throughout the empire, which made communication easy. Among the Christians, there were many, many heroic, brave, faithful missionaries, people like Paul and Silas, who went out and shared the message of Jesus. But, you know, above all of these things, there was one other factor that, humanly speaking, was probably the biggest factor of all. The factor that brought most people to faith in Jesus. Do you know what it was? Do you know what the the key was to to, to the Christian strategy? The key was that, the, the key that changed the entire world? I'm not going to tell you. Instead, today I'm going to show you. Because it's here in this little passage. This passage reveals what is probably the most significant human reason why the Christian faith spread so fast. 
let's just put ourselves in context. Remember what happened in Thessalonica? Thessalonica is the capital city of of Macedonia, what's what's now Greece. Uh, Paul and Silas went to the city. They taught the message about Jesus, starting off in the Jewish synagogue. Some Jewish people were converted, but, but probably moving out from there as well because it seems like it was mostly Gentile people who were converted there. But soon there was trouble. After just a few weeks or perhaps a couple of months, some people who were very angry about what Paul and Silas were doing, uh, they, they, they rounded up a mob, they started a riot, they got them thrown out of town. Paul heads off to Athens and then to Corinth. And, and in Corinth, he is really worried about the Thessalonians. They're only new Christians. They just had perhaps a few weeks or a few months of teaching. They are a church of new Christians and they're facing persecution from people around them. He's wondering if they're going to make it. Paul tries to get back to Thessalonica, can't do it. So then he sends his fellow worker, Timothy, to to, to go to the Thessalonian church to see how they're going and to encourage and teach and help them. Timothy comes back. He comes back with a good report. He says the Thessalonians are holding on as Christians. They're still going. But Timothy, it seems, also raises a few issues and questions that the church has. And so, Paul writes this letter to the church. Uh, In the first three chapters we've seen over these last few weeks, he thanks God. He goes, I can't tell you how incredibly happy I am that you are still going as Christians. He says, that is fantastic. And now, in these last couple of chapters, he, he picks up on the issues and questions that he's heard from Timothy. Last week, we saw, do you remember, that he dealt with the issue of sexual immorality? And now in this next section, he deals with the issue of love. The issue of love. Paul starts off by addressing the issue of brotherly love. Now, it's easy for us to gloss over this because we think, yeah, brotherly love, we know what that is. But what what we don't get is that the word brotherly love, it's um, it's a word you would, originally in, in the Greek language, but it's a word you would know, it's the word Philadelphia. You know, there's a, there's a city in the U.S. named after it. Philadelphia means brotherly love. Well, brotherly love was literally used for the love that you have for a brother. It's a word that's only used in families. It's when a brother loves a brother or a sister loves a brother, that is the word that you use. You don't use it anywhere else. So what Paul is doing, he's, he's taking the word and he's, he's extending it. He's taking it out of the context of family and he's using it for the way that the members of the church should love each other. That says something quite radical about church, don't you think? It says the church is the family of God. Through Jesus, God becomes our father. And so we become brothers and sisters in the family of God. And so the members of the church are supposed to treat each other like family, like brothers and sisters. I don't think that's supposed to mean we're to fight and bicker all the time and and have big fights over our toys or something like that. I think what it means is we're supposed to have a strong bond for each other. Uh, Christians are supposed to love and care for each other in a kind of a, if you come to my house, you can open the fridge sort of a way or a, a blood is thicker than water sort of a way. Brotherly love. Well, Paul says it was happening in the Thessalonian church. He says that God himself, by his spirit, has inspired them to love each other like family. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 9. Have a look with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 9. Now, about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. 
The Thessalonians love each other like brothers and sisters, but it's even more than that. They even love the people in the other churches in Macedonia. So Thessalonica is the capital city of Macedonia. They, they, they love even the other churches in, in Macedonia. Verse 10. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. We don't know exactly how they showed this love. Although we do know from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians that the Macedonian churches were extremely poor. Extremely poor. So I take it that the way that they showed love was to not just let their country cousins um, starve, but to to keep an eye on them, to pray for them and, and to send help as they were able the Thessalonians do love each other like family. They, they do love the wider church like family. Paul says, that is great. But he says, don't stop now. Don't rest on your laurels. No, no, he calls on them literally to, to greatly overflow with love, to do it more and more. Second half of verse 10. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. So that's brotherly love. Now, the next paragraph, uh, if you read it in English, as of course we do in the NIV, it seems like a complete change of topic. But, sorry to do this to you, but in the Greek language, the original language that this was written in, there's a word connection. In this next section, Paul is still talking about a kind of love. So do you remember the word for brotherly love? It's Philadelphia. Okay. Well, can you see the word ambition there? Ambition. It's not Philadelphia, it's Philatimia. Philatimia. So it's got that philo part at the beginning of it. It's a word that means love. So Philadelphia, love for your brother. Philatimia, Philatimia is what you love to, what you love to honour, what you love to value in your life, what you aspire to, long for, hence NIV translation, your ambition. So what should the Thessalonians love to honour? What should they aspire to? What should their ambition be? Well, Paul, Paul puts it in, in three ways. He gives them three things to aspire to. First, he says, I want you to aspire to live a quiet life. Now, that word quiet, it can mean zip the lip, say nothing. It can be contrasted with noise. But it's a little bit more than that. It can also mean to rest. So, for example, the word is used of resting on the Sabbath day. It also means to be quiet in the sense of to be at peace. So the contrast is, it's the opposite of being a troublemaker or an agitator or a stirrer or someone who causes fights. It's also contrasted with someone who's kind of hurrying and worrying and stressed. Something like, so imagine the picture of an ocean. It's the contrast between a kind of stormy wind and rain and, 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 and just a calm ocean. I think a nice translation would be something like, make it your ambition to chill. Chill out. Something like that. Second thing to aspire to. Second thing to aspire to is to mind your own business. Now, the contrast there is mind your own business, not everybody else's business. Don't be a busybody. Don't stick your nose in everyone else's business. Don't gossip and criticise all the people around you. Don't worry so much about what everybody else should be doing. No, no, you do what you need to do. A contrast can also be um, minding your own business as compared to public business. Don't worry so much about changing the entire government system or something like that. You just get on and do what you need to do. Fulfil your responsibilities. Mind your business. It reminds me a bit of a husband who was once telling me about how he was the head of his family. He said, yes, yes, Jeff, I'm, I'm the head of my family. I, I look after the important things like 
world peace and environmental degradation and the state of the oceans, where my wife looks after the little things, like where we're going to live and, uh, and uh, what we'll do day by day and what we'll eat and that kind of stuff. You see, you see the distinction? Saying, don't stress so much about all the big... You just worry about what you can change. Mind your business. Two things, quiet life, minding your own business. Third thing he says to aspire to is to work with your hands. Now, I don't think that means we all have to have jobs in manual labour. I don't think the contrast is um, work with your hands and not with your brain. I think the contrast is work with your hands rather than not at all. What he's saying is don't be a bludger. Don't be lazy. Don't be idle. Don't sponge off people. Do what you do with diligence. Look at me at the three ambitions which is really all one. Three ambitions. Verse 11. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you. And then Paul goes on to give two reasons why these are the things the Thessalonians should aspire to. First, he says, you win the respect of outsiders. The image is that you will, you will walk with good form towards outsiders. It's a picture of, um, the idea is that that they'll be a winsome community. So people will look at them and and they'll go, oh, these people are okay. They're not going to look in and think, well, I'd hate to have anything to do with those troublemaking, gossipy bludgers, so please, I've got nothing to do with that. No, they're going to look in and think, hey, that'd be a nice group to be part of. I think the NIV gets the image quite well. They'll win the respect of outsiders. They'll be a winsome community. Second, Paul says they won't be in need. Uh, the, the word he uses could mean that they won't need other people, they won't be dependent on other people. It could also mean that, that they won't need any stuff. They'll have everything that they need. Now, verse 12, here are the two reasons. So that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. The picture I get here is, is, is church is, is God's team in the world. God's team with the mission of winning the world, with the mission of commending Jesus to the world. And the way that they're supposed to do it is to become the kind of community that outsiders will want to be part of. And, and the members of this team, what they long for, what their ambition is in life, what they, what they love to honour is to be able to play their part, make sure that they're not involved in creating trouble. Make sure that they're not gossiping and worrying about what everybody else does, but getting on and doing their own thing. Making sure that they are working so that they can, they can be independent and they can provide for other people. Do you see? The ambition is to create a community that will win the world to Christ. All right, can you see then what's here in this passage? Paul is talking about two kinds of love. Brotherly love, he says... Good on you, Thessalonians. You're doing it really well. You're loving each other like brothers. You're loving other, other churches like brothers. And he says, keep on going. Be extravagant. Be abundant about it. And then second, he talks about what they love to honour, what their ambition should be. He says, you're part of God's team. Make it your aim. Make it your ambition to become that kind of community, the, the kind of community who lives at peace, who minds their own business, who aren't bludgers, the kind of community that will, will win the respect of outsiders, who won't be in need, who'll be a winsome community. You know, friends, in the ancient world, this was incredibly effective. This teaching was a critical factor in the success of the early church. 
The church suffered dreadful persecution, but they did change the course of history. And fundamentally, the way they did it was by doing what Paul says here, just in these couple of verses. By loving each other and by being a winsome community. We don't look at this a whole heap as Christians, um, but there are a lot of writings, of course, that come after the Bible. And in the first two or three centuries of Christian history, the, the writings are, that the writers are called uh, the early Christian apologists, they're often called. People with names like Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, Tertullian. These guys, uh, they also wrote letters. They're not included in the Bible, but we still have many of them. And these guys, the sorts of letters that they wrote, they would write letters to the authorities to say, please stop persecuting us. Uh, they would write letters to churches to try to encourage them, just like Paul has done. They would also write letters to, to uh, non-Christians to try to evangelise them and share the message about Jesus. And, you know, without exception, these early Christian apologists keep coming back to these same issues. They keep on saying, look at the Christians. Look at how different they are. Look at what good citizens they are. Look at how they love each other. Uh, so, for example, there's Tertullian. He writes in around about the year 200 and he's writing to the emperor who at the time was persecuting the Christians and he goes, well, while you're persecuting, every week when we meet, we pray for you and we do good deeds. We're good citizens. In another part of the same letter, he talks about how Christians love each other and care for each other and he says that what brands the Christians, their kind of brand mark is their noble love for each other, the fact that they call each other brothers and the fact that they share with each other and look after each other, especially the poor and the weak. Tertullian says, this angers our persecutors, but sensible, rational people look at it and they keep joining us. They keep winning people to our cause. Friends, humanly speaking, this was the secret. This was the secret to the church's success. It was about what they loved. They loved each other like brothers and they loved to play their part in being a winsome community, commending Jesus to the world. So what about us? What about us? Are we a church like this? Is our love causing us to make a difference? I think we're making some difference, aren't we? We are slowly growing numerically. Every now and then, a person becomes a Christian among us. People sitting here this evening who weren't Christians before they came to this church and now they are Christians. Even saying good, goodbye last week to Kevin and to Stanley. I mean, Stanley became a Christian at this church and has grown and developed so much as a person. Now some other church is going to benefit from it. A bit sad, really. But a great blessing to see what God has done in his life. We are making a difference and that's because we are a bit like the Thessalonians. We do, I think, love each other like brothers and sisters to some extent. Uh, for example, we see a lot of each other. Uh, most people are at church and Bible study regularly. That's twice a week. That's a lot more than most of us see our biological families. I was talking to a lady this morning and she said, I see you a whole heap more than I see my son. And I said, well, I see you a whole heap more than I see my mother. <laughs> we see each other more than family at least. And many people in our church do show genuinely brotherly, genuine brotherly love to other people. We share things. I think somebody shared a tent today, this week during, uh, on the email, didn't they? We help each other, we rejoice in each other's good times, we provide support in tough times. I think if people looked in on our church, or if they joined with us for a while, I reckon they would say that we live in a reasonably calm, 
kind of a community life. Uh, we're not a church full of trouble and strife. We have our moments, but not, not that much trouble and strife. I think an outsider would say that we mostly do mind our own business. We're not, we're not a people who kind of gossip and talk about how nobody else is doing their job. And we, most of us just get on and do the work. Now, certainly we're not a church full of people who are lazy or idle, who are bludgers. Most of us work very hard, probably too hard. We have way more than we need and, and hopefully many of us are being generous with our plenty. Most times when I speak to people who visited our church, they, they're quite positive. They say, yeah, you're a nice group of people and I got a nice welcome. Thanks. That's good. But we're hardly shaking the world, are we? The great majority of people who visit our church don't stay at our church. Every year in our church, we lose nearly as many people as we gain. And I reckon most of us don't even notice who we lost. In terms of our wider community, I suspect we're not even a blip on their radar. Hardly anyone knows we even exist. Now, I know we live in a very different world to the Thessalonian world. Uh, our world is so much bigger. I mean, there are way more people in Sydney, way more people even in Chatswood than there would have been in Thessalonica. It's harder to be noticed because we're, we're so much, there are just so many more people. And I think it's harder to be noticed also because we're not persecuted. Nobody's pointing to us and going, look at those terrible Christians, how awful they are, let's kill them. We're not persecuted. We live in a, a country of religious freedom and so nobody notices us. Also, we live in a community that, that has had a long heritage and history of, of, of Christian values. And so if you live consistently as a Christian, you're not going to be vastly different from the people around you, the kind of North Shore people around you. You're not going to stand out quite as much as a Thessalonian would have. I can see there are reasons why we're not having the same impact as the early church, but it's not all just stuff outside us, is it? I think part of why we don't make much difference has got to do with us, doesn't it? So let's just spend a few moments thinking about, just asking ourselves a few questions arising from this passage. What about the issue of brotherly love? Uh, you and I, we are God's family. Brothers and sisters in Christ, is that how you perceive the people around you? Do you perceive them as your family, your brothers and sisters in Christ? Now, if you do, what difference does that make? What difference does it make to your life? Does it mean that you make it a priority to, to be with your brothers and sisters, church, Bible study? Does it mean that you make it a priority to, to share with them, to, to look out for them, to, to help those who are in need, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to, to weep with those who weep? Do, do, do you make the effort to actually share deeply and profoundly with your brothers and sisters? Last night, Carmelina and I had dinner with um, a couple of couples from our school, our children's school. We didn't really know them very well, and so we were telling our story, and we told the story of our wedding. Um, and at our wedding, it was a day like today, really. It was January the 16th, 42 degrees Celsius during the day. We are in a church around about this size, could fit 180 people. We'd invited about 100 people, about 100 people. But at that church, everybody went to everything. You know, if there was a wedding, everyone would go. If there was a funeral, everyone, if they opened an envelope, everyone would go. It was the kind of church that... And so 150 people from church came and on this 42 degree day with this church of 180 seats, we had 250 people squashed in, sweating like crazy. It was an interesting wedding. I don't think we have quite the same culture here, do we? 
was at a funeral the other day for um, the mother of, of a guy in the church, and there were four or five people from our church who'd made the effort to be there. I was pleased, but not, not 150. You and I are brothers and sisters in Christ. Could you, could you describe yourself as having brotherly love? Could, you, um, could the Apostle Paul say to you what he says to the Thessalonians? Have you been taught by God to love your church as brothers and sisters? Are, are you, what he says, greatly overflowing with love? What, what about the second issue, the issue of what you love to honour, what you aspire to? Friends, we have the incredible privilege of being on God's team of being a community that has a message that we can commend to the world, a community that knows the Lord Jesus Christ and who can commend him to the world. Is it your ambition to make our community a winsome one? Is it your ambition to stay out of trouble, help it to be calm and peaceful, play your role in smoothing the waters? Is it your ambition not to, not to gossip and grumble about what everybody else doesn't do, but just to get on and do your bit? Perhaps I'm often less than sympathetic of people who tell me about how loveless our church is. Do you want to be part of the problem? Whinge. Do you want to be part of the solution? Love. Is that your ambition? To mind your own business, get on and do what you can do? Is it your ambition to, to be diligent, faithful in the employment that God has given you? Is it your ambition to be part of a winsome community to commend Jesus to this world? Or do you have, do you have um, one of those small ambitions like advancing in your career or getting high marks or getting a bigger house or having successful children or living in comfort and security? You know, mostly when I talk to people about this sort of stuff, they tell me, Jeff, the problem is I don't have time. That is the constant refrain I hear from people in our church. I don't have time. I'm too busy with this, that or the other. I read this passage, though, and wrong diagnosis. Everyone has the same number of hours in the day. It's not about having not enough time. Can you see from this passage what the real issue is? Can you see? It's not about not having enough time. It's about not having enough love. We don't love each other enough as brothers and sisters. We don't love enough the idea of being a winsome community that, that, that can win the world for Christ. It's our love that's lacking. Friends, I don't, I don't mean to you, I don't want to be harsh, but Jesus did not die for you so that you could aspire to live a selfish North Shore life. Jesus did not die for you so that you could live with the same love, the same ambition as people who don't know Jesus. Jesus wants something for your life that is so much more meaningful, so much more worthwhile, so much more earth-shattering and eternally valuable. So friends, let's love. Let's love each other as brothers and sisters and as part of God's team, let's aspire to play our part in, in in commending Jesus to our world and, and let's pray that God will do with us what he did with the early church and, and shake this world. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your magnificent love shown to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that while we were still sinners, Jesus died on the cross for us and rose again from the dead. 
thank you for giving us a message to proclaim and a mission to fulfill. Thank you that we know Jesus and can commend him to our world. We pray, Heavenly Father, with thanks to you also that we're not saved as individuals but as, as a community, as a family. We pray that by your spirit you would empower us and help us to love each other as brothers and sisters and to love making our community one that will win and change this world. Please help us to see the extraordinary glory of this life and to long to live it. We pray it in Jesus' name.